I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. I hope that each of you had the chance to listen to the previous episode, our two-part history of New York City Ballet. If you haven't, I encourage you to do that now, as it lays the foundation for the entire podcast season by introducing the key people and ideas that have shaped this great company. In this episode, we will explore a mesmerizing ballet by Jerome Robbins called Opus 19, The Dreamer, which is set to Sergei Prokofiev's first violin concerto. We will delve into its history, structure, significance, and how it is cared for and performed today at City Ballet. I'll be joined by three guests who each have a unique perspective on this piece. Let me introduce them to you now. First, we have Jean-Pierre Froelich, who is one of the ballet masters here at City Ballet. Known as JP, he is responsible for the many Jerome Robbins ballets in our repertory. He's a native New Yorker. He was trained at the School of American Ballet, SAB, where he performed important children's roles with City Ballet, including the role of the prince in Balanchine's Nutcracker and a role that Balanchine choreographed especially for JP in the ballet Don Quixote. In 1972, he joined City Ballet, where he rose to the rank of soloist. He worked closely with both Balanchine and Robbins and originated roles in both men's ballets. J.P. was Jerry's right hand, working as his rehearsal assistant and ballet master until Jerry's death. J.P. now stages and coaches the Robbins works here at City Ballet and for ballet companies around the world. He is the principal ballet master for Opus 19, The Dreamer. Next, we have City Ballet principal dancer Taylor Stanley. Born in Philadelphia, Taylor received his early dance training at the Rock School and ultimately graduated from SAB. He joined City Ballet in 2009 and rose to the rank of principal dancer in 2016. He is a spellbinding interpreter of the Balanchine Robbins repertory and a muse to the many choreographers who now work with our company. Notably, Taylor has originated roles in 10 of Justin Peck's ballets. He dances the lead male role in Opus 19, The Dreamer. And finally, we have Kurt Nikkinen, the concertmaster of the New York City Ballet Orchestra, Kurt was born and raised in West Hartford, Connecticut. He completed his violin studies under Dorothy DeLay at the Juilliard School. A distinguished soloist, Kurt has performed with many leading orchestras, including the Dallas Symphony, the San Francisco Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Cleveland Orchestra, the BBC Symphony, the Royal Philharmonic, and the Dresden Staatskapelle. Kurt has played under the baton of many of the great conductors, including Zubin Mehta and Vladimir Ashkenazi. He plays the Prokofiev Violin Concerto No. 1 here at City Ballet for the performances of Opus 19, The Dreamer. Welcome, gentlemen. I'm so glad to have each of you here, and I'm eager to hear your insights into this extraordinary ballet. JP, I'd like to start with you. You're one of the foremost authorities on Jerome Robbins' ballets, and you worked closely with him for many years. Could you tell us how you first met Jerry and what your first impressions of him were? Well... My first impression and the first time I actually did not really meet him, but I saw him, it was the preview of Dances at a Gathering and I was in the audience. And I never heard an audience react to a ballet uh, like that. 
I was going to the SAB as a student to the City Ballet Performances because I used to give complimentary tickets to students. And there was amazing dancing, but I didn't feel the audience really grasp what our dancers were doing. Audience would not go crazy after a, a ballet. But for dancers at a gathering, I've never heard bravos like this. And this bearded man comes out, which I've seen around, but... And I was going, okay, who's this Jerome Robbins? Then I went back home and then I got, went into all my LPs. I was listening to West Side Story Fancy Free because my father was a violinist uh, when I was very, very young before I actually danced. So it all started to click for me. And then when I was at SAB, he was putting together the concert again after 10 years of an absence for City Ballet. And he would come in and watch and then he would say to me, hey, you look great in class, and give me some corrections. And um, and then it was watermill time in 1972. 71, he was starting to create it. In 72, and he asked Balanchine, I would like to use Jean-Pierre as the young figure of youth uh, for watermill. And But he said, well, he's not in the company. He said, no problem, Balanchine said. He's family. So Jerry told me this story later on, that what Balanchine said. So that's and then it just went on from there as a dancer, as his assistant, and then that part of the trust that maintains his ballets. Could you place Opus 19, The Dreamer, for us in the context of Jerry's larger body of work, how it compares to his other pieces? I feel it's kind of autobiographical to the way he is as an artist and as a Renaissance man. I think it was very much what he thinks about and what he dreams about and how he thinks about things of what just happened or as he would go into retrospect of something that happened in the studio or in life. And he would always wanted to know the truth of things, why, why. But for Opus, it, it was more biographical. And I think he felt very uh, connected to the music because of his, his roots. He choreographed the ballet for Mikhail Baryshnikov, known as Misha, and Patricia McBride, known as Patty. And it was at an interesting moment in City Ballet's history when Baryshnikov came and danced here for a little over a year. And Jerry was the one who suggested to Balanchine that they bring Misha in to dance with the company. And you were in the company at that time. And what was it like having this superstar dancer join the company and become another one of the men well, of the ballet? I... I thought my career was over when, when Misha showed up because, uh, and then it, my career blossomed because he was here. And Bershnikov, I, I will say Misha, he actually was very kind to me and, and he helped me tremendously in regards to technique and interpretation of certain roles. But I have to say, Opus 19, um, knowing Jerry and how he liked to work, he didn't want to waste principal dancers' time many times. He didn't want to, you know, uh, he wanted to go through the process with other dancers. So a lot of this ballet, and I was there watching Jerry do this, was created or worked out, mapped out on Bart Cook and Heather Watts. And it's interesting because I have old tapes of rehearsal processes of how this ballet was put together and how it evolved into what it is now. And certain steps have changed because Jerry would try ideas on dancers uh, that he felt very, very comfortable with, very similar to Justin Peck because I know Justin likes to use the same people a lot. And Jerry was 
like that. He had this group of dancers that he always felt comfortable with. And then eventually Misha would come into it and Patty would come into it. And But he didn't do it very long. Patty did it much longer. Misha did it, I think, for one season. And then he went back to American Ballet Theater. Lincoln Kirstein was so happy that Misha did come join our company and he said this about Misha's dancing and the example that he set for the men of the company. He said, Barishnikov was a criterion of what the male body can achieve when implemented by school, heart, and mind. Well, what's interesting about Barishnikov also, 1972, the New York City Ballet went to Russia, and we heard of this dancer called Misha. We heard about Barishnikov, but we never saw him. And there was a performance at the Mariinsky, which was the Kirov at the time. And he, there was a gala with every, all these potters like Don Q, Flames of Paris, Peter, myself, Helgi, and quite a few dancers went to this performance, this gala. And Misha went to do Don Q. And we all looked at each other. We've never seen a dancer dance like that and do the tricks and technique of what he was doing. We've never seen that because our training was very, very different and it was mesmerizing to see him. And I was lucky enough to see him in Russia before he came to America. But uh, fascinating. It, it was just fascinating. The dance critic Clive Barnes described Misha's dancing as being this unique mixture of the aerial and the earthly. And I think that Jerry really exploits that in the choreography for this piece. Would any of y'all like to weigh in on that idea? No, what he does, at, exactly about Misha, that's a great description that Clive Barnes gave because he was really the total package, Misha. And I think this piece and how Jerry choreographed it brings out uh, Misha's qualities. There's one other idea about how Jerry used Misha in the choreography for Opus 19 that I want to interject here. Jerry used the leaps and turns for which Baryshnikov was famous, but as opposed to stringing them together in the more naked pyrotechnics of a 19th century male solo, like in Don Quixote, for example, Jerry wove these technical feats into the whole sweep of the ballet. They were deployed and situated in the choreography in such a way as to express different emotions, not as mere flourishes of athleticism. Also, Misha wasn't very much different than Jerry or any other artist. He had this, this very melancholy introvert, but at the same time, he is uh, respectful to others. He's very... Um, giving. He doesn't need to be in the limelight. It's not important for him. And Jerry was in funny way the same because I remember many years ago when he was creating Suite of Dancers and we were in the studio nine o'clock in the morning. Misha came in while he was doing his White Oak project and we would talk and have these great conversations, just Misha, Jerry and myself. And we were talking about critics and how they analyze and they, they critique and they they say things that sometimes, you know, it's hearsay. And Jerry would say, you know, we do what we do. It's what we do. We don't know what the out the outside world sees something different than what we do. You know, he said to me once, your parents must be so proud of you. And I said, I guess so. But I don't know because I'm in my, my work. And I don't see what the outside sees as much as I just do it. We have to do. 
I'm ser- I'm a servant. We have to continue a legacy, so to continue it. Our listeners will remember in our previous episode, we talked about this amazing letter that Lincoln Kirstein wrote to his friend Chick Austin when he was asking Chick to help raise the money to bring Balanchine to America back in 1933. And he lays out these different pillars of what became this SAB City Ballet vision. And one of those big ideas was that this work would require a lifestyle of service from all of the participants. And so it's beautiful to hear you articulate how that is still very much alive and well in this place, even these many decades later. Because it's not about you. It's about a bigger thing than that. It's, it's, it's about continuing something. And, and for the dancers, it's, it's, you're serving the dancers, even though, yes, you're running the rehearsal, but you're still giving them, you hope, information. Especially this generation that wasn't around, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Could you describe to us the basic structure of this ballet, Opus 19, The Dreamery? Well, it depends on the interpretation, but basically the structure, uh, you can view it in many different ways. I mean, it could be, it's a, it's a, a male, uh, maybe going back in time and yearning for someone that he loves or... Uh, could be his mother, could be a, a, a woman he had a relationship with, and she's the the unattainable, you know? And he's pushing memories away in certain movements. He's opening up the treasure chest of, of all these feelings coming in. It's passage going through time and going into his past. She comes into him. Uh, his life or his vision. He connects with her. She leaves him. And maybe in part with the gentleman, I think of it as him being in the military. Has he had to leave her or his mother maybe to go away? And then he returns home and that relationship continues. It just depends on, and I try to give that information to the dancers. I let them find their own little story. It's not like a story in acting. It's, a, it, it's the movement and, and the inner reason why you do the movement. Because if you know what you, you're looking for, that movement quality will come out in your dancing and uh, how you phrase things. The music has reoccurring passages that come back like in the beginning, and then it comes back towards the end of the first movement. I think, and I'm guessing here, why it's called The Dreamer, because if you look at some of the notes of this piece, they talk about the first movement being like it's a dream. How Prokofiev composed it as a very lyrical passage of music. So I think that's why Jerry called it The Dreamer. Mm -hmm. Opus 19, The Dreamer. Now, Kurt, you play this extraordinary violin concerto for us, and it's this ballet is very much governed by the score of that concerto. Could yes. you talk to us about the structure of the music, the history of the music, its significance to Prokofiev's larger well, body of work? I mean, it's an incredibly interesting piece, and very interesting in the context of Prokofiev's output, um, especially since... So much time elapsed between the creation of the the opening melody in 1915, uh, following his ill-fated relationship with uh, Nina Mescherskaya, I believe, mm. 
uh, whose parents frowned upon Prokofiev's uh, relationship. He was just too much a bohemian for them. Um, so two years elapsed between the initial germ of the idea of the piece, which was to be a concertino, and the full-length concerto that emerged in 1917, along with the classical symphony and a few other works that have really entered the literature. He was still quite young as a composer and still developing. And these works were sort of the, the, the hallmark of his maturity as a composer. And they're also different. The Opus 19, six years elapsed uh, before it was premiered. And it wasn't premiered at home in Russia. It was premiered in Paris, of all places, and uh, as part of the Kusevitsky concerts. And it was a concert that also featured the debut of Igor Stravinsky as a conductor. And Prokofiev was hoping for an amazing success at this performance. And the Parisians had already responded very well to several of his other works, including the Scythian Suite. But this work is entirely different. Prokofiev, as he said, nobody appreciated him as a composer for his lyrical qualities until much later. His early music was characterized by rhythmic drive and sheer excitement. And I think the Parisians were expecting this from a violin concerto of Prokofiev. And instead, they got this sort of free-form, almost free-form fantasy with a romantic first theme um, that comes back at the end of the piece. There's no real slow movement. Of course, there's rhythmic drive and bite in the scherzo, but it's predominantly a lyrical concerto um, in a concertante form, not at all what they were expecting. Some critics compared it to Mendelssohn's music, and you have to understand, Mendelssohn was out of favor at this point. That wasn't exactly a compliment. Today, Mendelssohn's music has been reevaluated, and he, of course, is considered to be one of the greatest composers of the Romantic era, sublime craftsman. But actually, this violin concerto, to me, bears very little resemblance to the Mendelssohn. Usually in a classical violin concerto, you'd have an expository first movement, a, a, a slow movement, and then a brilliant finale full of pyrotechnics and um, you know pitting the violin soloist against the orchestra and ending with a lot of drama. And Prokofiev kind of went completely in the opposite direction. This violin concerto ends pianissimo. It kind of trails off. It presents the very same material that appeared at the opening, but in even more dreamlike form. And um, I think it really speaks to Prokofiev's yearning for something else other than the truth that he was living at the time. Um, he had been to the United States. He had tried to live in Germany for a period. He wound up in Paris. Interestingly enough, three days after this premiere, the piece was presented in Russia in a violin and piano arrangement with Horowitz playing the piano and Milstein playing the violin. And that was a success. And uh, the Russians embraced this piece. Their criticisms, if any, were kind of the opposite. They felt that the piece was too modern, and they didn't like the scherzo or the biting elements of the piece. They loved the lyricism. Somehow, you know, their perception was completely different. So where's the truth? Um, it's, as always, it's somewhere in the middle. And as a violinist, I have to say, the lyricism is probably the most uh, important element in the piece and uh, perhaps the most elusive one to capture. At that October 18, 1923 <clears throat> premiere performance at the Paris Opera, there was an illustrious crowd 
in the audience. Adam I understand. Pavlova, I understand. Uh, Picasso, Picasso was in the audience, and the violinist Joseph Segetti, who would become yes. the piece's great champion. If Segetti had not been at that concert, I'm wondering if that piece would have uh, languished for another few decades. Um, really, other violinists played it. I think it was premiered mostly by concertmasters. It's interesting in this country. Boston Symphony presented it with their concertmaster. San Francisco Symphony presented it with their concertmaster. But no big-name soloist had taken it up until Segetti. And he really took it upon himself to play it in every country where he concertized all over the world and really make a case for it. And he pushed very hard. His recording company didn't want to do it. And he basically strong-armed them into releasing it. And it is the classic recording still to this day. I mean, it's the, the first one I ever heard, Oysterox being the second. And, I mean, so there's some really illustrious precedent in terms of performances of this piece. And today, you know, every, every violinist plays it. But uh, very few audiences are aware of the, the complex history surrounding the work. Mm. This is a great quote from Sigetti about the concerto. He said, It fascinated me by its mixture of fairy tale naivety and daring savagery in layout and texture. Yes, I would say that pretty much hits the nail on the head. I mean, <clears throat> when he speaks of daring in terms of layout, I think he's referring to the lack of concern with structure and also certain effects uh, that you will hear in the writing that really verge on the brutal. I mean, there, there's so much, people speak of the lyricism, but it's juxtaposed against this almost violent uh, rhythmic propuls propulsion and drive, and also extreme effects like quite extended sections where the violinist is asked to play sul ponticello and create an ugly sound. I mean, the opposite of the opening of the piece. So it's almost like the protagonist or the soloist has to go through this trial by fire or, you know, you imagine that there's this incredible struggle that um, costs great effort. And then at the end, when the opening material comes back and you're able to find that lyricism again, um, you're, you're at peace. Could you talk a little bit more about that dynamic of unflinching brutality in Prokofiev's music? Yeah, I mean, perhaps it had to do with what, uh, what was happening at home. I mean, the turmoil uh, of the Russian Revolution, his desire to return home, <clears throat> his years in exile. Um, he said it himself that people appreciated those elements. You know, it's almost like uh, when you go to the movies and you see a blockbuster movie, you know, are you giving the audience what they want? Um, you're, you're kind of, audiences had gotten to know him as a composer of... Uh, they had gotten to know the bad boy Prokofiev first. And to me, that means the music of the Toccata, uh, the seventh piano sonata, um, certain other things that are incredibly dramatic and gripping uh, without necessarily being profound or evocative or lyrically beautiful. And here Prokofiev was saying, I can write as beautiful a melody as anybody in the Romantic tradition as well. And... He he certainly succeeded in this case because I, I think the opening of the concerto is the most beautiful in the 20th century literature, even when you count works like his second concerto or um, or the Alban Berg, for example. Um, it kind of stands alone. The contrast between the rhythmic element and the lyrical is perhaps the most extreme. 
it's almost like Schumann, uh, Florestan, and Eusebius, that you have a dichotomy between the lyrical Prokofiev and the other. Even in the first movement, the, uh, the opening directive is sognando. It's the only work in the literature that uses this term, and it means dreaming. And, however, it doesn't mean dreaming without a pulse. There's sort of a dance-like pulse. And, interestingly, I, I always felt, before I knew that it was a ballet, I always felt it should be danced. Um, and the second theme is marked narrante, speaking or telling a story. And Oistrakh used to say of this section, um, it should sound like you're trying to convince somebody of something. It should sound like you're presenting an argument, a logical argument. And the argument unfolds, and it morphs into something else. And then the, the C section of the first movement, the um, part where the sort of development, it's not really a classical development, but where he takes the main motif of the, the rising perfect fourth, bom, bom, and brings it in really unimaginable directions. Uh, it becomes passionate, uh, violent, um, sarcastic. It, it goes through so many different characters before it reaches the coda, and then you have the, the sort of peaceful quality of the opening, but with a kind of shimmering undertone. I mean, he, such simple materials. The, he takes the perfect fourth, the most common interval in, in all of music, and that becomes the basis for this whole canvas. It's, it's so remarkable. I mean, I think that's what strikes me the most about it is the, the actual underpinnings are so simple, and he's so economical with it. And it's actually quite a short piece, right? It's about 21, 22 minutes in length. But it takes you on a journey uh, that's really unbelievable, considering the, the simplicity of the opening. I think, um, I think he wanted to shock people when he composed yes. that, because people pigeon, pigeonhole you into a certain category in life because that's what they're yes. expecting you to do. Maybe he got tired and of I that. And yeah. I'm guessing yeah. here because I'm not... I didn't know him. <laughs> yeah, but also I, I think I was born after him. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think he. I think he did want to be. He wanted to surprise people, and I think. That's right. And I and I think he, I'm sure he was disappointed that it wasn't a success. But well, he was a composer in his uh, mid to late twenties. He was what twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight years old at this point, and I think at this point at at this point in his career. Yes, the success was important, but far more important was um, finding his true voice as a composer and reaching a complete expression. And his vision was coming into focus. And I guess um, he, when you present yourself in good faith to the audience and you expect that people will not be comparing, you're asking for too much because it's, it's human nature. And you had Stravinsky on the same program. And the, the word of the day was to be daring. And the avant-garde element was more important than beauty. In fact, I think uh, the Paris musical establishment at that point was anti-beauty. They wanted something that was raucous, and they were looking for a sensation uh, like Rite of Spring or, or Stravinsky's Octet. And it had to be that different or it just wasn't going to sell, which is 
a shame, but we all go through those kind of trends in music, and it's dangerous to judge them at the time. I guess you just have to have faith that um, if you don't like it, it's a, it's a passing thing. And if it's here to stay, it's going to stand the test of time. And, I mean, this work certainly did. Mm. It's amazing in light of all of that that it became one of the enduring pieces of the literature and much because of Sigeti's championing. And then I think it had by, all to do with that. Yeah, yes. and then played by a whole host of great violinists since. And yes. could you talk to us a little bit about how you sense an interplay with those previous interpretations and to what degree it's you're interesting. related to them? It, it is very interesting. And I think about it all the time, especially when I revisit this or, or pieces that are even more overplayed, like, like the Mendelssohn, for example. I always use the Mendelssohn as an example because it's a piece that we take for granted. It's just so much the lifeblood of every violinist. And sometimes, you know, a student will say, well, you know, why should I even learn it? I mean, it's been played brilliantly, you know, a million times. What, what new things could I possibly have to, to say about it? And uh, my old teacher at Juilliard, Dorothy DeLay, used to say to me, you have to find where you fit in the pantheon of people who have played this piece. And how do you do that? How do you make a case for it? And those were the exact words she used. How do you build a case? You have to think like a great lawyer would think, that when you're presenting a concert, you're not just playing music for people. You are presenting an interpretation um, and if it's a piece that's been played a lot, is going to be compared to other interpretations, very, very fine interpretations of that piece. So the most important thing is you have to know your precedent. You have to study uh, with almost a legal turn of mind every great performance that you have access to and be thinking to yourself, okay, I like that. Why does that work? I'm going to do something different here, and so on. But if it's informed by your uh, broad knowledge of precedent, then you will know where you can deviate from it. That's that's actually very true with with dancers and actors. It? It's all the same because I've had conversations with dancers that said to me, "Oh, um, you know, certain." people that rehearse me don't give me enough ideas and I said well maybe you need to do your homework mm. maybe you need to know and think about this before coming in a studio and understanding that's right the history of it because once you know the history of anything you can move forward that's interesting that, that your, your teacher said that and it's something that that I learned over time because I rehearsed these ballets and Jerry was very particular, but I'm finding out when I see Taylor Stanley perform Opus 19, it's very different than Baryshnikov, Bart Cook, Peter Bowl, Gonzalo Garcia, I, and I, Robbie Fairchild. I can go on, but it's, it's valid and it's interesting. And it took me a while as a ballet master to start to let see where it goes. They have the structure, but I see where it leads that dancer because it's, it's the same thing like a violinist or an opera singer or um, any, an actor. Then you need to explore, you know, different things. And I said to this dancer, you know, I'll tell you if something is misplaced. 
but come in with something. Just you need to do some homework here. Yeah, so it's, it's the same funny. thing. At a at a certain point, it becomes a question is uh, it becomes a question of what is my style. Um, when you approach a work, um, and you have this, you're feeling the weight of this precedent of great performers before you having played it, or great composers having composed. I mean, Brahms felt that I think more keenly than anybody, because he was the heir to Beethoven. Beethoven felt that he was the heir to Haydn. And it's, it can be stifling, or if you really absorb it, you, absor you learn the lessons well, you, from yeah. the predecessors, and then you find your way, it's liberating. Yeah, and you can you have, leave it, you have to, to be free, I think you have to understand what came before, and then go in a different direction if necessary. And the second idea she planted in my mind was the, the concept of, okay, once you have done this study, how many missed opportunities did you find? How many things in the score can you say, oh, nobody's brought that out? That detail I hadn't thought of, and apparently no, neither had anybody else. Let's focus on that. I want to. I want to show. That's well, interesting was, to me. She was trying to make you an artist. And that's to how you become an delve artist. Delve into yourself to become an artist. You have to. And when you're a student, uh, that's a tough one. I, I, I'll never forget. I was teaching a master class um, one time, and somebody had brought in uh, introduction to Rano Capriccioso or one of those virtuoso pieces that's been played a lot, and her playing of it didn't make any sense. And so I started asking her, so what, what are your favorite performances of this work? What, uh, which ones have you seen live or w recordings, anything? And, <laughs> and this girl said, oh, I haven't listened to any because I want to find my own way. I, I, I don't want to be influenced by anybody. And I thought, well, that's exactly the problem. Um, not only do you not sound like anybody, it's, uh, it's not coherent. Plus it might be hollow. Plus it might be hollow, it's not based on anything. So I think the, the, th the thing that I always keep in mind when I'm having a fresh look at the Tchaikovsky or the Prokofiev first or the Beethoven is my job here is not necessarily to be groundbreaking and reinvent the wheel and rip everything up by its roots and say, I'm going to do this differently from anybody who's ever played it. But it's just in some subtle way to layer on top of it. You know, we, we all have kind of a, a map of the great performances we've heard. And of course, we don't want to be imitative, but uh, we want to present something that has some awareness of the greatness of what's come before, and then say, I'm going to focus on these three details this time. And it could be different next time, but you're sort of e being groundbreaking in a very subtle way that maybe only you are aware of, but that's enough. That provides the freshness. And then, for me anyway, when I had the opportunity to go to the next step and put it together with dance, that opened up a whole new vista of possibility. So it's, I mean, it's a tremendous thing to combine arts and make something that's, that's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm.
Taylor, you are such an extraordinary interpreter of this lead role. And to what degree do you feel informed by all of this history of the piece? And what's some of the dynamic of getting to dance this to Kurt's playing? First of all, just sitting here and listening to you both impart your knowledge and your, your wisdom and your history is super fascinating fascinating to me. And I mean, I've only danced, I've only performed this part three times and that's so minuscule in comparison to how much it can actually grow and just to hear these tidbits of um, history and experience working with Jerry and um, your experience, Kurt, with, with, the, with the piece, um, it just broadens my view of this ballet entirely. And I, I can't wait to like get in get into the studio now and like welcome in all of these all of these new facts and these new perspectives. And so, being kind of new in this ballet in this role, um, this was like the first ballet I'd ever seen at New York City Ballet. I remember I took my parents while I was at the school, um, and it was a program of. Balanchine, Swan Lake, Opus 19, The Dreamer, and Vienna Waltzes. Very nice mix of things and like a welcome to this this world, this universe. And it was just um, so incredibly beautiful and moving um, to see to see these works. And I just remember Opus 19 being just particularly unique, especially kind of sandwiched in between those um, those other Balanchine masterworks. As an audience member, I was put in a trance um, watching it, and to be learning it now, uh, however many years later, and to be performing it was a dream in itself. You know, it was very surreal, and my first reaction when JP said, you know, we're going to have you learn this part was kind of like me. Like, I don't know, I had this confusion around it um, as if it weren't actually real. And as I began to learn it and try to become more comfortable with it, it felt more and more like it was not made for me, but I... Uh, I could relate to the to the movement and to the choreography in in huge ways, physically and emotionally, and with moving with the violin, dancing to the violin, there's such a distinct relationship between the protagonist and the the violin soloist, where almost every step the protagonist takes is to um, a note or a phrase um, created by the violin. And so there's this linear progression, you know, there are, there are these ups, these incredible ups and ups and downs, but you're moving as one dancer and musician. And it's a really uh, incredible relationship to take on this journey with you. You feel kind of safe under the, under the rhythms and um, the notes of 
of, of the music. What are some of the challenges, technical, emotional, spiritual, of this role? There are many challenges. Um, it's definitely a race. Uh, it's a marathon for, for the lead male. Um, you leave the stage once in the span of 20, 21 minutes. And the majority of dancing you do is, you know, jumping and running around the stage, um, partnering the woman. And you get, a, you get these brief moments where you get to catch your breath. You know, there's a moment in the first movement where you're, you've done this really tough solo already and it's only been like five minutes. And then you get to sit down in the corner and kind of watch your thoughts, your, your memories, your, your dream dissipate in a way which is when the, the women enter the stage and the lead woman kind of parts the ways and introduces herself. So stamina-wise, it's incredibly challenging. There are insecurities around, you know, the costume. You're in this white unitard. And, you know, one of the biggest things I try to think about is turnout and pointing my feet and making sure my knees are straight and kind of trying to create the, the most elegant lines I can to match the elegance of the score. In the second movement with, you know, the choreography, it gets a little more wild. And so I feel like I can let go of that elegance a little bit, which is nice. It turns into this kind of free form interpretation in, in some of the, the moments that you're talking about. Um, I forget the, the terms, but... Right. Well, we spoke of, um, if I may interject here, the, the Sognando character, uh, which represents Prokofiev's lyricism, his fourth category, and the narrante, or speaking, um, which represents the second thematic area of the first movement that becomes the middle of the scherzo that you were talking about as being one of your favorite moments. I, I think the middle of the scherzo, the, the reason it's so powerful is because the, the energy of the music is so tightly held. I don't know if, if, that, if you feel that in the dance as well, but there's a barely contained violence or extraordinary energy that's waiting to burst out that actually doesn't burst out until later, but it's all contained at that point. Right, definitely. I, I do feel that in the second yeah. movement. I feel that um, that sort of piercing pulse that, That's right. that begins the second movement. Um, and I feel this build up to the moment where the woman leaves and or they kind of they press their hands together and they create this electric shock or vault that causes the man, the, the man to collapse and the other men to enter the stage in the same sort of collapse, collapsing wow. form. like a kind of release or um, 
uh, a break. A break yeah, there, it, the, electric is a good word for it. There's all of this electric music that's scored very high, that's sort of up in the air, and then you have the middle section and and also the climax of the movement that utilizes low brass like tuba and so on that's very heavy and extremely grounded and i i think again it's prokofiev playing his polar opposites off against each other to create this sort of sublime tension the music and the touching and then the energy between two people and then it's so much energy it explodes. That's right. It reaches uh, a, a breaking and, point. And you, you, you collapse because you're physically exhausted from, from that, that, that tension. It's like when someone's attracted to somebody in real life, yeah. you have this physical energy and attraction you cannot explain, and it could be overwhelming. I feel that is what's happening to that, that, that's, that section um, where they just break it and it's like an atom bomb. The whole thing just explodes because there's so much going on and it creates another universe. But um, back to Taylor Stanley, uh, I, I find uh, back to this piece, as for a dancer, I've heard from so many people and I actually was taught it by Jerry at one time before I became a ballet master. He wanted to, he was bringing in a lot of dancers to, to learn it and he was teaching it himself. And um, it is one of the most physical, exhausting ballets for the male dancer because it goes through these. You think you just got your breath, and then all of a sudden, boom, it starts all over again. And it's like the music, and what's important... It's relentless. Relentless, and what yeah. I try to say to dancers more now than ever, I want to see the music on stage. And that, that connects to what Taylor's saying how the music, the violinist, and the lead male. So closely is, intertwined. Yeah, absolutely, because he is the violinist. I mean, the he feeling is, I have when I play it is that it's chamber music, but not between two musicians. It's, it's chamber music. It's the first time I've had this experience of playing a duet with movement. Because the violin is his voice. Yeah. It's the, voice. it's, yes. Yeah. Exactly, and it's a great experience to rehearse it in the studio as well, because you can feel that, yeah. and you can you can see what what the dancers are experiencing, and uh, I mean I've I've said it many times that the pieces I've learned here and the pieces I've developed here um, while I've been with the company, the experience of playing it with choreography forever changes how you look at it. I would never play it in concert the same way. Um, because it tells a different story now. Absolutely. Um, I think something else I find incredible about this music is I like to think of it as extraterrestrial in That's a way. so interesting. Um, because I felt that from the very first time I heard the piece. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, too, how the ballet creates that atmosphere just as much as the music does. I feel like I associate this ballet with sensation and what I am physically feeling in my in my skin and in my in my bones and my muscles when I'm exhausted or when I'm just standing still, it causes me to um admire those sensations and connect them to 
my my like the at, the atmosphere that's been created and with with the corner ballet and the 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 or the orbital patterns they create around around us and I just find it very like I'm in space or I'm in the stars. Yes, exactly. You know, uh, Prokofiev was a stargazer. He knew a lot about the. Uh, he he loved to look up at the heavens, and I think his music very often evokes a sense of wonder or a, a sense of um, deep curiosity about what lies beyond or what's, what's up there. I think he was constantly thinking about that. And this, this piece, there's another dichotomy, dichotomy the uh, otherworldly and the earthly. Jerry, for him, he had to understand what the piece meant to him. And what with Jerry's pieces, like what Taylor was talking about, this unique, and you're talking stargazing and, you know, another sphere, is Jerry would create these, these worlds on stage. All his ballets, he creates a sense of, of community and sense of... of togetherness. And that was the same process as when he choreographed, like when he did Dybbuk. It was like us against the world kind of thing mm. because he, he would create this amazing working atmosphere. Yes, his state would go back and forth when he got frustrated that he couldn't create and things weren't coming out easy. But it was you felt really, really special. And with Jerry, which was fascinating, because he saw a talent. He would love you. Taylor, but he saw talented people at a very young age before Balanchine would. And Jerry would start to use people like Bart Cook, um, many dancers like Kira Nichols, and then Balanchine would, because Balanchine would stay for Robin's Ballets and watch them. He was in that first wing watching every performance of every ballet, no matter who was the choreographer. And um, uh, he would see Jerry using this dancer, and then he would start to use this dancer. So what was great about these two great artists was they were, they were feeding off each other. And I remember when Robbins was, I know we're getting off track here, when he was tired and he was stuck in Four Seasons. Mm. Stuck. Did not have any more ideas. Called Balanchine. Balanchine came up and sat in the studio and ask for suggestions, and what do you think I should do here? Interesting. Because it wasn't about, they were so secure and insecure at the same time as artists, because that's what makes you a great artist, is, to, is your insecurity, uh, that it just worked. It, it just worked, and, I, and I'm very fortunate to have worked in that, that time. So, But um, Jerry would create. These, these these worlds and I and I think Taylor when he performs it uh, is is creates his own world and um, um, fascinating you have to come see him dance it it's fascinating 
JP, you're responsible for this and really all the Jerome Robbins ballets in the repertory. And what's the importance of coaching in the stewardship of these ballets? Robbins' ballets, um, and I've said this in, in a couple of interviews, they don't have the structure that balancing ballets have. They're, it's about the process, the evolution, and um, it's it's partly and it's mostly about the coaching, and it's not about the steps. It's why you're doing the steps. His ballets are very very sensitive uh, in regards to um, how they look and how they're presented and. You have to rehearse some more so that the dancer is, doesn't feel like they're performing it for the first time. It feels like they've done it before. He wanted that, that it's important that relaxed um, and being comfortable in your space for the dancer to be comfortable in their space. So they're aware of their movements and they're, they're, they're aware of where they are in space and connected to the floor. So, um, but for Jerry, it's it's coaching and understanding who who he is or who he was as a choreographer, and understanding that it's not about you, the the ballet master, or it's it's about, like I said before, serving what you do um, as uh, giving to Taylor or listening to what the artists and musicians have to say and and try to and to understand and be patient i that's very very important gentlemen this has been an extraordinary discussion of this ballet and i want to thank each of you for sharing so much of your insight and your passion for this work and i know our listeners will gain so much from it thank you thank you're you. welcome thank you in addition to my conversation with J.P., Kurt, and Taylor, I also had the privilege of talking on the phone with Peter Boll. He is a former City Ballet principal dancer and the current artistic director of the Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle, Washington. Opus 19 is very dear to Peter. In 1979, when he was a 12-year-old student at the School of American Ballet, he had attended the ballet's world premiere. He vividly remembered Mikhail Baryshnikov and Patricia McBride's performance. Jerome Robbins later chose Peter to dance Opus 19's protagonist, which became a signature part for Peter. He danced it dozens of times over the course of his 22-year career at City Ballet, including as part of his retirement performance. Peter shared with me his memories of Jerry's exacting and revelatory coaching for this ballet, the way Jerry obsessed over the geometry of how the dancers moved through the stage space and related to one another, the way Jerry rehearsed the piece to look spontaneous and improvisatory, what Peter called perfect randomness, the way Jerry demanded a complete physical and emotional investment from the dancers. And we discussed how Jerry's own complicated inner life found some kind of expression in Opus 19. Peter also reflected on Mikhail Baryshnikov's idea that this ballet is about Jerry's life. For that reason, Opus 19 wasn't just another 2 to 3 p.m. rehearsal. It was something far more. Here is what Peter said. Misha says that um, he felt it was autobiographical 
about Jerry's life. Mm. And then you hear that and you're like, oh, yeah, because that would make sense and that would make sense. And that sort of alienation from that right. peripheral world right. of core dancers, that mm. inability to connect, I mean, to connect deeply with the female protagonist, but mm -hmm. but somehow it's not quite as cohesive as, you know, it's not a romantic ballet. It's, I mean, yeah. she's like a haunting spirit, right. also a kindred spirit, but not, it, it, it doesn't feel like a, a partner, mm -hmm. um, more of a force. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, as I think Jerry often felt, is that you're really alone in this world. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think some of the alienation that dogged him his whole life was part of Opus. Um, but it, it, I mean, I think that's why it was like you're, you're, you might be representing someone's life in this mm -hmm. moment. So you can't treat it as two to three. Um, you know, it's a big charge to represent, um, you know, his life or someone's life. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was doing. It was it was bigger than a ballet. Mm. It, um, it was really a statement. Mm -hmm. I hope that these insights have stirred in you the desire to come and experience this powerful statement of a ballet in person during our fall season at Lincoln Center. You will be moved. To learn more about Jerome Robbins, Sergei Prokofiev, and Opus 19, The Dreamer, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.